This morning we're continuing the series on the parables. We're looking at the parables that Jesus spoke that we see throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, today we come to the parable of the tenants, or maybe the heading in your Bible will say the parable of the wicked tenants or of the evil farmers. And really two of the biggest themes at work in this parable are danger and patience. And so the subtitle this morning is The Patience of the Father and the Danger of Rejecting the Son. How patient is God? And what's his response to the rejection of his son? So why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. If you have it on your phone or if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and and turn there and we'll read it together. And I'll be reading from the, the ESV translation. And if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read this. We believe that this is God's word. We believe that the creator of the universe is speaking to us this morning through this. And so we stand as a visual way of saying the words we're about to hear are different from the words that I'm going to speak this morning. This is set apart. And so in the words of Jesus, may we have ears to hear as we listen. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding as we, we dig into your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And this parable, which so clearly 
tells that story. Please give us eyes to see, Lord, and, and not just to understand in our minds, but actually in our hearts. Hmm. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. You know, one of the reasons I love this parable so much is because of how clearly it portrays the gospel. And so some of the parables are quite tricky to understand, Let, let's be honest. And some of the parables, we can't push the details very far at all. They're meant to state just a simple point. And so as Andrew Demoline spoke to us last week about the, the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, we can see that there's a point of comparison. So the, the plea of the widow goes to the judge. He is the one who is, uh, she asks for justice from. And so we see that correlation. But also there's a divergence. And so unlike the judge, God is not unjust. So how much more will God answer our prayers? But here in this parable, we see quite clearly the whole story of the gospel the whole story of Scripture played out. And the, the characters aren't that difficult to discern, even if they are quite simple. And so as we read through the beginning of this parable, we see that the master, which represents God, plants a, a vineyard representing Israel. And he carefully prepares this vineyard. And so Jesus is using language from Isaiah chapter 5, where Israel is compared with a vineyard, and it speaks about God planting and caring for this vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice, choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Uh, look at verse 30 three of our parable and see the parallels with it. There's the master who plants a vineyard and then he digs a wine press and then he builds a watchtower. And so Isaiah tells this parable to illustrate the, the lack of fruit that Israel has produced. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There's no justice, and there's no righteousness that's found in this vineyard. And so when Jesus tells this parable, this imagery of Isaiah is coming up in the minds of those listening to him. They are familiar with Isaiah's words here. But Jesus also makes an adjustment. Instead, of drawing attention to the vineyard, he brings in new characters, the tenants, the, the renters, the farmers. And so the, the master goes and he gives responsibility of this vineyard to some tenants, the rulers of Israel. And we, and we see that Jesus is talking about the rulers because when we go back earlier in verse, in chapter 21, we see that this section begins with the Jewish rulers asking Jesus where he gets his authority from. And so what Jesus does is he then has a discussion with them and then tells a parable, and he tells a parable about two sons. 
And then the second parable that he tells is this parable of the tenants. And so this is response to that original question from the rulers. But even at the end of the passage, look in verse 45, we see even more clearly when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. And so the adjustment that Jesus makes from Isaiah 5 is he adds in these tenants, symbolizing the rulers of, of Israel, the people that he is speaking to in that moment. And so Jesus being very bold, he, he's speaking in a somewhat veiled way, but Jesus is essentially pronouncing judgment on these leaders, and by the end of this passage, they understand that he's talking against them. And so the parable continues, and the landowner goes away. He has other business to do elsewhere. But then when the fruit of the vineyard is ready, he sends his servants, and these represent the prophets that God continually sent to Israel to warn them to turn back to him, as we see throughout the, the entire Old Testament. And so these servants come to collect the master's portion of the crop. How many of you here have seen Dragon's Den or Shark Tank? Okay, a few of you. It's fairly popular. And so where different investors or business owners, they come on to this show and they're in front of these uh, investors and they showcase what they're working on to try and get an investment. And you know, in our culture, we're familiar with in investments and with business, rentals, loans. There's an aspect of economics that we understand, that we're familiar with, and that is similar to the time and the place where Jesus lived, although there are some differences. And so this parable is like an entrepreneur. You know, he's just established this startup company. He's a businessman, and he's, he's starting to get this off the ground. He's put in money, and he's put in time, and he's built up this company. He's laid the foundations for it. He's established it. And now he's giving the responsibilities over to another group of people. So he's the investor. He is the owner of the project now. And so, so far, this parable isn't beyond the realm of our understanding. We're fairly familiar with this in our everyday life. You know, most of us don't have too much experience planting vineyards. However, the idea of rentals and business, we understand. And this is the same for the people listening to Jesus. This is a typical story, an everyday occurrence. But then Jesus adds a twist into his story, as he does with so many of his parables. One of the reasons the parables capture people's attention is because Jesus adds twists into the stories, and they're vivid. And so this is the part of the story where that unexpected thing happens. You know, think of those classic moments throughout film. How many of you are Star Wars fans? Ah, less than I was expecting. Okay. And so you think of uh, the original trilogy and episode five and that moment, spoiler alert, so please forgive me if you haven't seen them, but this is really your own fault. They've been around for decades. 
that moment where Darth Vader finally says, Luke, I am your father. Whoa! <laughs> I guarantee in the 70s, 80s, whenever the film came out, that was the thing that people were talking about as they left the, the theaters. That twist, that moment. Or we think of basically any Sherlock TV series, when you find out who committed the crime and there's that twist at the end. This is like that moment where, in a few weeks' time, you, you come along to the open mic night, and Dave Forsythe actually starts rapping. You thought it was all made up, but no, the twist is it's actually true. <laughs> we, we should all really convince Dave to do this. I think that, you know, if we just keep pretending like it's happening, he's going to have to do it, right? <laughs> this is the part where everyone that's listening into Jesus' story they're suddenly hanging on to every word that he's saying. And what is it that happens? Verse 35. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. The master sends his servants to collect some of the crop, the fruit of the vineyard, and the tenants beat them and kill them. You know, those listening would expect the vineyard owner to be the abusive one. That was what was more common in the first century. He was the person of power. But instead, in Jesus' story, it's the tenants, the ones who rightfully owe the vineyard owner. And Jesus is reminding us of how God's prophets were treated throughout the history of Israel. The author of Hebrews says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Being a prophet in Israel was not a safe or a fun job. Your life insurance rates would be pretty high looking at the, the history of the job. You just need to read the accounts of these prophets in the Old Testament yourself of the abuse that they suffered, particularly at the hands of the nation's leaders. And in the same way, the servants, the messengers of the vineyard, the, the vineyard's master. So were they treat, mistreated and killed. Jesus is reminding his listeners of a very dark part of Israel's history. So what happens next? Grant Osborne, a, a biblical scholar, says, in real life, the landowner would have sent soldiers after the first emissary was mistreated. The Romans would have executed or at least sent the offenders into slavery. In fact, some landlords during this period even had assassination teams to take care of issues like this. So what does the master do? And here's where the twist continues. Jesus consistently throws curveballs. Instead of meeting evil with immediate judgment, the landowner is actually merciful and patient. He shows great patience and mercy. 
He sends more servants. He, he leaves room for repentance. You know, this, this is not like with my one-year-old son, Everett, where he throws some food on the ground or kind of slaps me. I'm kind of like, okay, well, maybe that was an accident. I'm really not sure if it was, but may, maybe. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. No, this is blatant, intentional evil. There's a reason why we have the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. It's because these are innocent, unarmed servants. But the tenants meet them with violence. And still, the landowner responds to the tenants with patience and mercy. Grant Osborne continues, the landowner's failure to act would have been mystifying to hearers. And as such, it pictures the long-suffering covenant patience of God, a theme that threads its way throughout the Old Testament. It pictures the long-suffering covenant patience of God. Finally, we come to the, the climax of the twist. If the master's patience and mercy were shocking the first time, how much more is it now? Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. This is such a picture of God's mercy, his grace, his patience, and his love in sending his son Despite the tenant's evil, the landowner shows even greater patience and mercy. But then how do they respond to this patience? How do they respond to this mercy? But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The greed and the selfishness of the tenants get the best of them. You know, this parable is usually called the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants. I think it could equally be called the parable of the murdered son. This is the climax of the story. This is where the twists and turns finally happen, and it all culminates in this, the son who was sent and murdered. Despite the landowner's great patience and mercy, the, the tenants perform the most outrageous act of evil by killing his son. And that's how the, the parable ends. The, the son is murdered. But, but then Jesus actually finishes, and he he turns to the crowd, he turns to those listening, and he gives it over to them. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? You guys tell me. And they said to him, well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. There is patience upon patience and mercy upon mercy until finally enough is enough. 
there is an end to the landowner's great patience and mercy. This entire parable is a great warning to the religious rulers of Israel. And they condemn themselves. Notice who it is that responds to Jesus. Jesus is, is not the one that says the ending. He turns it to those listening. And who's listening? It's the rulers that are listening. And so they pronounce judgment on themselves. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and, and let out the vineyards to, to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Of course, that's, that's what he'll do. And they don't realize at that moment that Jesus is talking about them. You know, it's like when, um, when the prophet Nathan goes to visit King David of Israel after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And what happens is that the Lord sends Nathan to go and confront David. And so Nathan, in the presence of David, tells him a, a parable. And so he says, you know, there was, there was a rich man and there was a poor man in a certain city. And so the rich man, he had many flocks and herds. He, he had many sheep. But this one poor man, he actually just had one little lamb. And he would care for this lamb. It would, it would eat at his table, the scraps from his table. He would snuggle with this lamb. He would care for this lamb. It was like a daughter to him. He would let this little lamb drink from his own cup. Now, th there came a traveler to the rich man. And so he needed some food. And so the rich man, instead of going to his own flocks, he took the poor man's one little lamb and he slaughtered it and prepared it for the guest to eat. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Just like David, the rulers condemned themselves in their response to Jesus' parable. They pronounced judgment on themselves. And so Jesus' words to the religious rulers and their response is a, is a great warning to us as well. The danger of rejecting the Son. Verse 41, they are destroyed. Verse 33, they have the vineyard taken from them. Verse 44, a great stone either breaks them or crushes them. And then in light of all of these warnings from Jesus, they still don't turn away and go on to plot how to arrest Jesus and days later execute him. Even David, despite his sin, when confronted by the prophet Nathan, repents and seeks God's forgiveness, and God forgives him. He is patient and merciful. But here the hard hearts of the rulers keep them from repentance. And so as we finish, I think there are three appropriate responses that we can have to this parable. We may not be the rulers of Israel, but there are 
are still challenges in Jesus' words to us. And so the first is, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we giving God the fruit that is rightfully his? This was the first evil that the tenants committed. They kept from the landowner what was rightfully his. Are our lives filled with justice and righteousness like God was looking for in his vineyard in Isaiah 5? Are we giving God the glory and the honor that is due his name? And do our lives display the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are our lives bearing fruit? The second question I think we need to ask ourselves is, is God warning us? Throughout the entire Old Testament, we see that God sends his servants, the prophets, again and again to, to warn his people to turn back to him and away from their sin. God is immensely patient and merciful. And one of the ways that he displays this is by sending people to warn us, to turn us away from sin. That's a great mercy of God's. And so are we sinning against God? Whether it's by refusing to acknowledge his lordship over our lives and believe the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead or by failing to live to the standard that God calls his holy people to. It's a mercy that God sends friends and others to challenge us, to warn us, to call us out. And so may we not ignore those warnings when they reflect the truth found in God's word. They're actually a kindness from God. One of the great blessings in my life is God has given me a good friend who isn't afraid to, to call me out and to help me walk this holy path that God has called me to. This is one of the reasons why community groups, small groups, can be so fruitful is these relationships that are built up and they aren't just times where we can encourage one another and, and just make each other feel better about our sin. No, they actually call us to a holy life and help prepare us for eternal life. Very fruitful relationships that come from that. And so as Paul says in Romans, God's kindness in patience and in mercy and in sending people to us is meant to lead you to repentance. Or Peter the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so that's why we see this slowness in the parable that we've looked at this morning. Patience upon patience, mercy upon mercy. Why? Because God does not desire anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. And so it might hurt our pride, but in the long run, it is much better for our souls to pay attention to those that God sends to challenge and warn us. Finally, I think the third and last appropriate response to this passage is that it should well up in us a great sense of worship and praise. God is patient 
and merciful, immeasurably more than we deserve. Immeasurably more. But there's also another part of this passage that we skimmed over. And so the parable ends and the son is dead. And just a few short days later, after Jesus told this parable, he finds himself walking, beaten, whipped like the prophets that went before him on his way to death. This parable is spoken just a few days before Jesus was crucified. And so Jesus is raised up and nailed on a cross. And the sky darkens as he takes his final breath. And then he's, he's wrapped in cloths and laid in a tomb out of the light of day. But that's not the end of the story. And Jesus actually hints towards this in this passage that we're reading, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that was rejected has become the most important stone in the entire building. The murdered son is raised to life. Jesus was crucified, but is resurrected and transformed into the conquering king who takes away the sins of the world. God cannot be thwarted. This was the Lord's doing, Jesus says. The Lord is always at work, and he uses the most horrific act in all of history, the murder of his perfect son, to bring about our salvation that all who call on Jesus' name and believe that God raised him from the dead may have eternal life. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, this parable makes us so awestruck by your mercy and your sovereignty. And so we see your mercy and patience time and time again in light of sin. And we also heed that warning, Lord. We also heed that warning that there is an end to your patience. But we thank you so much that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. And Lord, we, we think of your sovereignty, how you are in control, how the stone that the builders rejected, you have made to become the cornerstone. This was your doing, Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's awe-inspiring in our eyes. We see how amazingly you, you are at work in the most horrific act in all history and you turn it into the greatest act of all history, our salvation. And so we, we come from a number of different situations today, Lord. Some of us have very difficult circumstances in our life right now. And this is hope, our ultimate hope, that Jesus is king and 
that he conquers sin and death. But also, this shows how you can bring good and light out of such darkness and evil. And so we thank you for that and we trust in that, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice that he willingly laid down his life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.